0: You're listening to The Pithy Chronicle, history with a bite. I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica. And we bring you history's dirtiest deeds dripping with sarcasm. Are you hungry yet? Welcome back, Pithy listeners. I'm Erica. And I'm Caroline. And today, we are digging into the Byzantine Empire. But before we get started on this mini sewed, <laughs> it's only six pages. I kept this pithy, Caroline. Thank you very much. We'll see, Erica. <laughs> before we get started, let's do a little bit of housekeeping. First off, thank you to our patrons on Patreon. If you would like early access to episodes, we're trying to build up a community, head on over. If you are more of a one-time giver, that's fine. We have a Buy Me a Coffee on buymeacoffee.com, so... You can give a donation as low as a dollar. Every little bit really helps us to make sure that we have access to the best research materials, really good quality audio, fabulous background music. It's all to help the podcast be better. Because who doesn't want to be better? The other way you can help is you can head on over to our merch store. Yes, we are on Etsy. So please check that out. We have backpacks. Laptop sleeves, t-shirts, canvas bags, you name it, we probably've got it. I really love the water bottle. And without further ado, let's talk about the patriarch versus the pope. What is a patriarch? A patriarch is a fancy word for a bishop. Good answer. Mm -hmm. We're taking this all the way back to 1054. 1054. The patriarch of Constantinople, Michael Cerularius, was excommunicated from the Christian's church based in Rome. Solarius's excommunication was a breaking point in long-rising tensions between the Roman church based in Rome and the Byzantine church based in Constantinople. Now Istanbul. The resulting split divided the European Christian church into two major branches the Western Roman Catholic Church, and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And this split is known as the Great Schism, or sometimes the East-West Schism. But it's the Great Schism. This is like a grand canyon of schisms. A lot of the the debates that they were having during this schism seem small to us today. Oh. But at the time, (laughs) you're going to get into it, I know. I'm so glad you brought it up, because... It all comes down to carbs, Caroline. It all comes down to carbs. Yeah. <laughs> was one of them doing keto? Because like The Great Schism came about because there were some religious disagreements, political conflicts, and some personality... Personality clashes. Yeah. Hmm. The religious disagreements really centered around... Whether or not it was acceptable. Yeah, to use unleavened bread for the sacrament of communion or whether you needed to use... Bread bread that is flat with no yeast, or bread that has yeast. As I said, it might seem like a small, unimportant detail to us now. <laughs> Have you ever made bread with the teeny tiny yeast packets? That's what it comes down to. The great schism. <gasps> Can we call it a yeasty schism? <laughs> no. Oh, you know you love the yeasty schism. <laughs> awful caroline (laughs) other disputes did come about with the exact wording of the nicene creed and western belief that clerics should remain celibate okay slight slightly bigger issues slightly bigger but the big one was about the yeast and the bread the yeasty schism the religious disagreements were made worse by the political conflicts particularly regarding the power of rome Mm. rome believed that pope who, in case you didn't get the memo, is the religious authority, the successor to Peter, on whom God is going to build his church, should have authority over the patriarch, the religious authority of the Eastern Church. Like a bishop, which would make sense in the hierarchy. Okay. And we'll get into this a little bit more, but there are levels of patriarchs, like which ones are more important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But at this point pope is kind of the tippy top of the pyramid and then maybe patriarch is second and then bishop two three so i guess instead i should say patriarch is kind of like a cardinal rather than a bishop but either way constantinople did not agree that the pope (laughs) was above their patriarch cardinal slash bishop slash yeah not second in command no and to their credit They were like, we are a fancier, more forward thing. So they haven't actually gotten there yet. Society. They haven't actually gotten there yet. Isn't that wild? What do you mean? They have not actually gotten to the height of what we think of as height, but they were still far better than the Dark Ages going on in Western Europe. That is fair. It's important to remember that when the Crusaders came along to Constantinople, when they got there, they were like, oh shit. Yeah. We could be living like this. Mm-hmm. It was so much less Dark Ages-y. Yeah. There was a lot more religious tolerance. They had art and culture. It was lovely. Naturally, these two sides disagree. And they excommunicated each other after the schism. You're out. You're also out. And this stayed in place until night. 19- 1965, mm-hmm. when Pope Paul VI and Patriarch Athenagoras I lifted the long-standing mutual excommunication decrees made by their respective churches. 1054 to 1965. Yeah. I like that we got closure. Thank you, <laughs> Pope Paul and Patriarch Athenagoras. All of that is to say that the governing structures between East and West were not that different. We have four ancient patriarchs, which are kind of the ruling class, and there is an ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, and that is the equivalent of the Pope to the Eastern Orthodox Church. Then it divvies down, and we'll see their significance in Thursday's episode Mm. about the Islamic world. There was the patriarchate of Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. The four ancient Eastern Orthodox patriarchs, along with the See of Rome, the Pope. formed the historical Pentarchy, remaining in communion with each other after the 1054 schism with Rome. The so, like, East East schism. they were still chatting with each other, but kind of on the DL. They have pushed each other to their own versions of hell and excommunicated them from ever going to heaven, but they're still having little discussions. So. That is the religious landscape, which, of course, for the Crusades is very important. But what did they encounter when they arrived culturally? It's going to be good. It's good. First off, let me just say thank you so much to the great courses on the Crusades. Mm-hmm. So I will be referencing those a lot from here on out. Culturally, we are going to go back to look at the reign of Basil II, the Bulgar Slayer. His reign, although a hot minute before the Crusades, encapsulates the epitome of the middle era of the Byzantine state. Constantinople, the capital, was the greatest Christian state, period, full stop, bar none. Sorry, Rome, because it thought it was, but it wasn't. No, Constantinople was hailed as the new Rome. They didn't like super love that moniker they thought Rome was annoying and a little bit of a backwater and believed they were much more superior. And they weren't wrong. (laughs) They were not not wrong. (laughs) So whether out of spite or aesthetic purposes, they styled themselves like the Greeks. Quote, in letters, arts, and aesthetic, Constantinople was akin to classical Greece and its nobility prized an education that stressed proper diction and comportment Quite in contrast to their co-religionists in Western Europe, unquote. This is the world in which the Crusaders survived in 1095. In the episodes from last week, we talked about how these knights trained their entire lives to be warriors and to fight for their lords. But but there wasn't a focus on poetry, art, sophistication how to eat with a fork. These were not the things they were learning. They were learning how to stab their food with a knife Mm -hmm. and kind of shovel it in their mouths and how to, you know, assault women on their way. (laughs) So it's a very different... Quite different. It's quite different. This was no small potatoes. The empire was a powerful bureaucratic state which covered modern-day Turkey, which we're going to call Anatolia or Asia Minor, the Aegean Islands, Greece, and the Lower Balkans. They were incredibly influential in the land of the Kievan Rus, what we now know as Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. This was a large swath of land that contained many ethnic groups. Two that will come back are the Varangians, Vikings who settled in the Rus lands, and the Pechenegs. I love that. The Vikings are... Everyone. Yeah, because we'll see them with the Normans. I know. They basically went and intermarried with everybody and made everybody better warriors. Truly, they did. Go Vikings. And Pechenegs, a semi-nomadic Turkic people from Central Asia who spoke the Pecheneg language. And in the 9th and 10th centuries, the Pechenegs controlled much of the steppes of Southeast Europe and the Crimean Peninsula. The Varangians held pagan beliefs before conversions, and the Pechenegs continued to be split between Christianity and Islam. It was, in fact, Byzantine missionaries who translated parts of the Bible into the old church Slavonic language for the first time, paving the way for the Christianization of the Slavs there is evidence that the first christian bishop was sent to novgorod from constantinople either by patriarch fauchus or patriarch ignatius circa 866 ish nice let's get one thing straight okay the byzantines did not have this issue between church and state the way the west did no church and state were hand in glove. Emperors believed themselves to be the second coming of David, a king of the Israelites known as the man after God's own heart, or quote, Iso apostolicus, equal to the apostles. That's a big deal. That's a big ass statement. <laughs> there weren't that many of the apostles. So I mean if you really want to get into it, there were only the twelve disciples, but there were many more apostles. Apostles oh, were part. ones that were below the directly disciples directly Well, they were directly influenced by the disciples. Okay. But after that, you (laughs) kind of get into just like random people. Just basic believers. Just basic believers. Who cares about them? (laughs) Basil is a part of what is known as the Macedonian dynasty. They wanted to use soft power tactics to enforce their reign, so they spent a ton of imperial money on making Constantinople A religious Disney World. The art created under their reign. (laughs) Yes. Am I wrong, though? No, it's perfect. It's perfect. The art created under their reign is what we most associate with orthodoxy to this day. Mm -hmm. And they invested a lot of money in the retrieval and preservation of religious relics. Quote unquote relics. (laughs) Look at this. Old As a refresher, these relics were usually bones or body parts of dead saints, pieces of the true cross, or anything used in the Passion of the Christ. A thorn from the crown. Another famous one would be the Spear of Longinus that pierced Jesus' body, or the Shroud of Turin, which has gotten some press recently, which allegedly was the funerary Shroud of Jesus. I've seen it. And... And it, it looked like a shroud. I mean, it is old. It's real old. So I've seen a lot of relics. I like the relics. I like to go look at yeah, them. It's... I find it fascinating that people gave their lives to find a piece of history. And that's what it was to them. It was a piece of history. It was like going to a museum and mm-hmm. seeing their world come to life. And while they aren't authentic most of the time, they stood for something that was authentic. Not only that, some of these relics allegedly had healing power. So you would go mm-hmm. to maybe conceive. You would or... go on pilgrimage. Right. Yeah. And that is why, for better or for worse, we get a lot of the Crusades because there were Crusades that were just armed pilgrimages. But we'll get into that at another time. All right. So, as we learned last week, the Middle Ages the dark ages were not so great for cultural and artistic and literary and it was a really rough time. It wasn't great. It wasn't great. But here in Byzantium, we're doing really well. We're kicking butt. But did they have a military system as well? I know that Western Christendom was ready for fighting. They had trained for it. They were a bloodthirsty bunch. Were the Byzantium group the same? Because they're quoting poetry over here. So like... But, like, you see my face that I just made at you? Uh-huh. Describe that face for the listeners. We'll make it again. <laughs> <laughs> it's this face. She's looking at me like I'm an idiot, so that's fun. Oh, this is my disappointed mom look. Oh, it's a disappointed mom look. I can't believe I didn't get that right the first time. I've seen it before I, I, from, from my I mother put, and you. You're just putting your mom on blast here today. No, my mother's wonderful. Continue. Military. What was their military system? Before we get into the specifics, let's also remind ourselves that the Byzantines had kept the bureaucratic systems of Rome, which gave the emperor himself power to tax the citizens directly. He didn't have to deal with the nobility and the manorial system of the West. Yeah, because that was a pain in the ass. Oh, such it a pain. Really in the hurt the consolidation of power. Bureaucrats were salaried positions at court eunuchs were employed as political fodder but also held positions of great power so you had to actually be semi-competent at your job what to be employed and salaried shock i know it's not just inherited now of course there was some overlap with the nobility but largely they were bureaucrats and eunuchs, unfortunately, if they were good at their job or they needed someone to kind of escape go, it ended up being the eunuchs. Because most of them were basically captured from other areas of the world, right. castrated, and brought there to be bureaucrats without familial allegiances that would mm-hmm. degrade their decisions. Exactly. And that was not only a tradition in Byzantium, but also in the Islamic mm-hmm. world, as we'll see later. I mean... Logically, it, it does make sense and it did work, but Was it rude. cruel and unusual? Very. Yes. Similarly, again, to the Romans, there was a standing professional army. We're not talking about peasants with pitchforks. They train for this. They are professional. Having a field army or a scoli in Constantinople, which was a tradition that went back to Constantine, was a huge uniting force mm-hmm. this meant that they had something to rally behind it was a shared experience for people who were professional military i mean look at the military community in the u.s today since that's kind of an easy thing for us to talk about yeah we have the experience you get together at these hail and bales what do they all talk about they talk shop. they do it's in a uniting environment even if it's to bitch and complain it's a culture It is. Mm -hmm. It 100% is. And it's a profession versus just a pastime or a hobby or uh, once every five years you're needed. I'm rich and bored. Yeah. If only I could be rich and bored. There also was a squad of elite bodyguards. Talked early about the Varangians. They had about Mm 6,000 which fought with a double axe and a spear. The double axe coming from the Vikings. Yes, I was actually going to say, if you've ever watched Lord of the Rings, Gimli, son of Gloin, he has a double-sided axe. So you can think of the dwarf, or you can think of the Vikings. You choose. Your choice. (laughs) Choices, choices. The Varangians were similar to like a Praetorian guard. They protected the emperor himself, his most skilled elite group that would go out and kind of do the dirty work for him. But there were also provincial armies which were stationed around the countryside. Soldiers were given land as payment for service to the emperor and would go to a centralized location to train at regular intervals. Oh my gosh, it really is like our modern day military. Yeah, think about the U.S. Reserves. Yes, exactly! You were in a higher class if you were cavalry, got a little bit more land. But think about the U.S. reserves today. They drill. They can be called up. But by and large, they have regular day jobs. That makes a lot of sense. So how is this different then from the fiefdoms and the vassal type relationship that's in the West? Great questions. Since you wrote it, it should be. Anyway, it's a matter of central authority. Mm. In the West, armies might fight in the name of the sovereign, but he didn't pay their bills. Usually there was a noble middleman that got the cash or the money from the sovereign, and then they were paid. This is not the case in Constantinople. The emperor's name was on the check, so to speak. The emperor endowed the land that they worked, and the officers they reported to were selected by the emperor. There was no nobleman in the middle. There was a bureaucratic middleman, but not a noble in some far-off county. Somebody was paid to literally come and give you your money or yeah. give you your yeah. land. There wasn't this nobility involved it's like there. The military's checks are signed by the US Department of Defense. DFAS Cleveland? DFAS! <laughs> but it's all from that central pot, if you will. Yes. And that definitely makes you like the emperor more. Right. Because he pays you. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Everything was centralized in the capital, Constantinople. Lovely place. Also, the notion of recapturing Jerusalem anytime time in the 1000s was kind of strange to the Byzantines. This is my favorite fact about the Crusades. It's just so bizarre. What the hell? So bizarre. People were like, why are you doing this? Well, because they saw themselves as the new Jerusalem, likely in a prophetic sense. You get so many references to the city on a hill and the new Jerusalem and Mm la 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 la. But also because what did the old Jerusalem have to offer? Most of the relics had been brought to the capital. Mm -hmm. Why go there when everything is here? I mean, they basically British Museum Imported. (laughs) I love it. Yes, they British Museum Jerusalem. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) sorry, British Museum. Give me a job if I'm ever there, but there's no other yeah, way to say it. And to some extent could be argued that they preserved the artifacts. Yeah, I mean. And others could say that they stole them. You know, there's a you distinct thought on repatriation in the nonprofit community, but you know, we won't get into that. There is, yeah. They did send lots of money back to help rebuild the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and a couple of other things. They were still actively sending money for these projects in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was no longer the holy city, the holy capital. That was Constantinople. Hard stop Constantinople, yeah. The Byzantine princess Anna Kamena wrote in the Alexiad, which is her whole writings on her father's reign. And we're going to get into the details in a couple episodes. Oh, yes, we are. She's spicy. This is what she has to say regarding the arrival of the first crusade. Emperor Alexios dreaded their arrival, knowing, as he did the Latins, or Western Europeans, uncontrollable passion, their erratic character, and their irresolution. Not to mention their greed for money, which always led them to break their own agreements without scruple, unquote. Ouch. Yeah, I mean, that's not glowing. She read them like a book. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She sure did. It's clear that she believed that her father, Emperor Alexius, was very suspicious of the character, supposed traits, and motivations of the Crusaders. He did not trust them as far as he could throw them. He didn't want them in the city. No, and she argued that the whole expedition was a plot to seize Constantinople and dethrone and replace the emperor. This evidence demonstrates that the Byzantine emperor of the time, Alexios, deeply mistrusted the crusaders and believed their ultimate goal was to attack Constantinople, destroy the empire, and usurp his throne. Regarding specific actors within the crusade, Anna called Tancred de Hauteville a barbarian lunatic and Beaumont of Toronto a (laughs) rogue. Furthermore, the crusaders are always referred to as Latin barbarians within the text. It's uh, pretty clear how she's feeling. So they see this crowd of bloodthirsty, axe-bearing ruffians because they were ragtag for the most part. There were some knights, but they were pitchfork-wielding peasants for the most part. They see them coming. How much notice in the beginning? How much notice did they get that this horde of crusaders is coming? How much notice did they get? Were they aware that they wanted to find sanctuary in the city of Constantinople before going on to Jerusalem? Did they think they were stopping here? So, you would think that the Byzantines wouldn't need any help, quote, getting the Holy Land back. Yeah. Yeah. Because why bother? Why bother? But also, we've just said that they've got standing armies and Varangians and, you know, this, 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 this. Yeah. We're going to take a quick peek at the absolute hot mess express that is the council of Piacenza and Claremont in 1095. Urban II, who was Pope at the time, was in warm bordering on boiling hot water and needed a distraction to cover up the major sex scandals, revolts, and allegations of simony that were going on to smooth over the recent investiture controversy as well. Not to mention a little anti-Pope drama Oops. This all came up early 1095 during the Council of Piacenza, which you can hear in gross and amazing detail in our episode (laughs) about the Holy Roman sex scandal. It was salacious. Back in season two. He was on a get well tour of Italy and France to make sure everyone recognized him as the Pope and not that doggone anti-Pope Clement after the investiture controversy. Mm -hmm. It was such an explosive council that he had to take some time to strategize before reconvening at the Council of Claremont. It was at this council he preached the First Crusade. Okay, how did we get from A to J? I'm missing the intermediate steps. Here is the key, and it is a battle, the Battle of Manzikert. This is the battle in which the Byzantines were defeated by the Seljuk Turks in 1071 and marked the beginning of the end for the Byzantine Empire as a militarily viable state. Many of these professional elite troops of the Byzantine Empire perished at Manzikert. And the Emperor Romanus agreed to cede important Byzantine territories. Upon Emperor Romanus's very embarrassing return, he was overthrown, blinded, and then killed by his political enemies. Ouch. The weakened Byzantine Empire called on fellow Christians in Western Europe to come to their aid, an appeal that eventually led to the mounting of the crusade. Okay, 1071. I get that things weren't going well. But that's a 24-year gap. So were they asking for help this whole time? No, but take a guess at how many rulers there were from 1025, the height of the middle era that we started talking about, and 1081 when Alexios took over. So that, just guess. I'm going to go 3. Four, 3 to 4. Oh, my sweet summer child. How many? there were 13. Wow. It was a string of short-lived and ineffectual rulers. I did the math. In 56 years, there were 13 rulers, meaning they had an average reign of 4.3 years. That's like a presidency. That's a lot of turnover. Yes especially when you're being murdered at the end of it. By the time Alexios ascended the throne, the Seljuks had taken most of Asia Minor. Alexios was able to secure much of the coastal regions by sending peasant soldiers to raid Seljuk camps. But these victories were unable to stop the Turks altogether. So as early as 1090, Alexios had taken reconciliatory measures towards the papacy. Mm with the intention of seeking Western support against the Seljuk Turks. And in 1095, his ambassadors appeared before Pope Urban II at the Council of Piacenza to seek the help he needed from the West. So the help he needed from the West was simply some mercenary forces. That's it. Not the immense hosts that arrived to his consternation and embarrassment after the Pope preached the First Crusade at the Council of Claremont later that same year. Specifically, he wanted Normans. Well, they were the fighting force. They were very capable. They were very careful. he went to the Pope, which would have been hard for him anyway, because, of course, he would have been more about the Patriarch mm-hmm. and Eastern Orthodox Christianity than the Catholic Church. But he went to the Pope and was like, I'm really desperate. I just need some mercenaries to help me fend off the Seljuk Turks. And the Pope sent him. This call was met with an enthusiastic, popular response across all social classes in Western Europe. Mobs of predominantly poor Christians numbering in the thousands, led by Peter the Hermit, a French priest, were the first to respond. So the first people they're getting are not even trained anything. They are... Much less Normans, Much less they're Normans, the peasants. They're the peasantry. What has become known as the People's Crusade passed through Germany and indulged in wide-ranging anti-Jewish activities, including the Rhineland massacres. On leaving... It just never ends, does it? It it really doesn't. On leaving Byzantine-controlled territory in Anatolia, they were annihilated in a Turkish ambush led by the Seljuk Kilij Arslan, in October of 1096. So they did not make it very far. Alexios was like, this was not what I asked for. Definitely didn't ask for a band of anti-Semitic peasants who killed with wooden forks. He literally sent them to the front lines to die because he was like, this is not what I asked for and I don't appreciate this. So did they participate like at all? They passed through briefly, but that was just the people's crusade. What is now known as the Princess Crusade, or just a later wave of crusaders, were members of high nobility, and their followers, or their retinue, embarked in late summer 1096, so almost a year later, and arrived at Constantinople between November and April of 1097. And there was no leading force. These armies were from individual lords, Who heard the call to crusade and they Mm -hmm. prepared themselves and their vassals. And the vassals maybe prepared their guys and off they went without thought of we should all come together at the same time, we should have a strategy. Mm -mm. Which just shows the ego of these people. It was like BYOB and no plan after. It was a potluck of crusaders. Mm -hmm. Bring what you can. Yeah. A dessert, a side. And drinks. this time emperor alexios was more prepared for the crusaders and there were fewer incidents of violence along the way not to say there weren't any just fewer <laughs> and you know he was a little bit more prepared to have noblemen they still weren't the normans that he wanted nope they were the franks but here we are here they are the crusaders may have expected alexios to become their leader but he had no interest he was looking for mercenaries, someone he could pay and send out. And he wanted them to go to Asia Minor. Did he want them to retake Jerusalem? N- no. No? He didn't care about that. Weird. He was mainly concerned with transporting them into Asia Minor as quickly as possible. Getting them out of his beautiful city. Yeah. In return for food and supplies, Alexios requested that the leaders swear fealty to him and promise to return to the Byzantine Empire any land recovered from the Turks. You're here to help. Don't freaking take it. Mm -hmm. It's not yours. You were doing this for me. Here's some food. Get the f*** out. ensuring that the various armies were shuttled across the Bosphorus, Alexios advised the leaders on how best to deal with the Seljuk armies. Here's food, supplies, and a little primer on how to fight these guys. Toodaloo. Leave. Without getting super into it, the Crusaders thought they were going to fight arm in arm with the Byzantines to take back the Holy Land. Not even close to what Alexios requested. Wow. He just wanted some mercenaries to help clear out the Seljuk Turks and reclaim his land, which was very much not the Holy Land. No. It just wasn't. It was Asia Minor. It was Anatolia. So there was a huge disconnect when literally hundreds of thousands of people showed up who were not mercenaries. (laughs) How much notice did he get that he was not getting mercenaries, but he was getting Uh, bands of roaming people? I don't think he got any. No one sent him a heads up. Hey, Pope Urban II is telling people to come save Jerusalem, not you. I don't think so. I think when he saw the peasants, I think that was what... Clued him in. Peter the Hermit was able to inspire hundreds of thousands of people to drop their pitchfork and walk with him. Yeah. No, thanks. I ain't walking nowhere with anybody. Sorry, Alexios. Now, Alexios did give a lot of logistics support Mm -hmm. to the crusaders, but was not about to get out there and head the charge, which led folks to feel manipulated and slighted. Yeah, because their pope has just told them that this guy is asking them to lead this fight. And they've, they've mortgaged their farms. They've left their families. Many of them believe that they will die in the Holy Land and receive eternal salvation for that sacrifice. Indeed. They had lofty goals, and then they find out they've been lied to. I just really think that Urban II got into that communion one and had a little bit too much of the body and the blood. I think he just started spouting stuff and then when it well, really yeah. I mean, and then it, it hit, into the pulpit it hit people were like yes jerusalem and he's like "Ooh, that worked okay let's go with this plan mm-hmm. and the man just oh, didn't stop urban. until there were tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people marching their butt over to constantinople and now they're alexios's problem he did not read the assignment no He didn't read the brief. He did not understand the assignment. Mm, That's the the thing the kids are saying. I understood the assignment. The siege of Nicaea by the Crusaders forced the city to surrender to the emperor in 1097. And the subsequent Crusader victory at Dorilion allowed the Byzantine forces to recover much of Western Asia Minor. Done. Yeah, great. John re reestablished Byzantine rule in Chios, Rhodes, Smyrna, Ephesus, Sardis, and Philadelphia. This success ascribed by Alexios' daughter, Anna, to his policy and diplomacy, but by the Latin historians of the Crusades to his treasury and deception. So they did surrender to the emperor in name or he went? No, in name. Just in name. In name. ain't going over there. And then his daughter, Anna, was like, Daddy did it with policy and diplomacy. Yay, enlightened daddy. Yay, enlightened daddy? That's what she thought. Is it what? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. (coughs) I love the the last remnants of your COVID come out with your laugh cough. Who knows how long it'll be here. Oh, God. In 1099, a Byzantine fleet of 10 ships was sent to assist the Crusaders in capturing Laodicea and other coastal towns as far as Tripoli. The Crusaders believed their oaths were made invalid when the Byzantine contingent failed to help them during the siege of Antioch. Bohemond, who had set himself up as the Prince of Antioch, briefly went to war with Alexios in the Balkans, but he was blockaded by the Byzantine forces and agreed to become a vassal of Alexios by the Treaty of Diabolus in 1108. So, at some point, the Crusaders literally turned on Alexios because they didn't like the help they were getting, and then fought amongst, basically, themselves? Yeah. Cool. Mini-Civil War in the midst This is the most testosterone fueled bullshit That we've covered in a while This is such a hot mess in 1116, already terminally ill, Alexios conducted a series of defensive operations in Bithynia and Mysia to defend his Anatolian territories against the inroads of the Malik Shah, the Seljuk Sultan of Iconium. And in 1117, he moved into the offensive and pushed his army deep into the Turkish-dominated Anatolian plateau, where he defeated the Seljuk Sultan at the Battle of Philomelion. And that that's kind of it. Byzantium, a hundred years before the Crusades, was the height of enlightenment, art, culture, poetry, as well as a very well-run bureaucratic system with a highly trained professional military. Byzantium was the place to be. They had collected all of these holy relics and brought them so that their people could have that feeling of the Holy Land without actually bothering to go into territory that did not belong to Byzantium. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we ended up with 13 idiots in a row who were often murdered in terrible, brutal ways. And that left a very big power vacuum at the top, which Alexios came in 80 years later and tried to fill. But And to be fair, did a decent job. And did job. a decent job. He had a 30-year reign. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, a lot of the bureaucratic system had fallen apart. And a lot of the military leaders had been taken out of their jobs because they had disagreed with the 13 previous emperors. And so they just didn't have the strength anymore to hold off the Seljuk Turks on their eastern borders. Out of desperation, he goes to the Pope and says, look, I just need some mercenaries. Yeah. I'd really like the Normans. They're great fighters. Could you send me a few? Yes. And the Pope, drunk on communion wine and desperate to avoid people noticing his sex scandals, Mm -hmm. among other issues, says, yeah, totally. Guys, we should go to Constantinople. We don't need to stop in Constantinople. Let's go all All the way to way to Jerusalem. Let's just go. Let's take it back. Let's free that city from the islamic and frankly the jewish tyranny authorities the tyranny of these other religions mm-hmm. and everybody else was like yes please we finally have enough food that we can actually do this so they go, and Alexius just looks out his window one day and sees a horde of hundreds of thousands of peasants with no arms. Who don't speak the language either. Coming that need to be fed and clothed, and they're led by a hermit who ate only fish and evidently never bathed. Oh, so that's rough. Peter. Peter was nasty. They get there, and Alexius is like, This is what you see sent me Mm -hmm. and then a year later the military might shows up Mm -hmm. but they have no interest in helping stand off the Turks they want to conquer Jerusalem and then they're confused when the Byzantine Emperor is like no I'm not doing that no I can't leave my already fragile state Mm -hmm. to fight for a city that wasn't mine in the first place what are you idiots doing yeah and that was the first crusade yeah cool And that, my friends, is that. I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica. And we are Pithily Yours. This episode is brought to you by the Pithy Chronicle, LLC. The Pithy Chronicle is intended for education, entertainment, and non-commercial purposes. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity. While we offer lots of sarcasm, this podcast does not offer any advice or services. Listening to this podcast may induce fits of laughter, unexpected distraction, or uncontrollable rage at the subjects. Hopefully not at us. We hope you learned something today. If not, so sorry. Please be advised we are not experts in the following fields. Medical, legal, financial, technological, thermonuclear engineering, submarine warfare, neuroscience, or cat husbandry. Thanks for listening to our little disclaimer, just covering our history-loving asses. Bye!